the show that goes there. This is the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome to it from, well, a little island in the Pacific to the rest of the world. Hey, aloha and welcome. Today we've got a lot of things to run through, including boycotts and blackface, deceptions, denials and death, and... Oh, God, so much more in our week of review. Uh, Before we get all to that, let's get some brief introductions out of the way. Hi, welcome to my little show. My name is Shaggy Jenkins, critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal and sane, and always found at shaggyjenkins.com or wherever fine social media is trolled for information by Russian bots at Shaggy Live. Joining me from the very windy city of Chicago, he is a man that is... God, so used to dissecting those full of hot air. Please welcome back to the mic. Uh, he is a, God, I could say, radio personality, internet personality, podcasting king, Saint Chris Bass. Uh, thank you very much, Shaggy. You have overcome for I Am Here. Thank you so much. And always good to be with you, man. Always good time. Yeah, well, let's chop it up. Beginning with, oh, God, I shouldn't have used that as a segue. Um... Let's begin with reactions from the White House when it concerns the death of a reporter from the Washington Post because it's dominated the news this week. I'm talking, of course, about Jamal Khashoggi. Um, Chris, walk me through what you think the president was thinking the moment when reporters kind of ambushed him with the question about it and he went through all the mathematical figures of the uh, story. It's really hard to take this president seriously when it comes to any issue. And so when I saw some of it unfold, it didn't come off like someone who was genuinely heartbroken and mourning someone who was killed and died. And I think he feels, well, obviously he said to the press a long time ago that they're the enemy. And when you approach it like that, I can't take him seriously. And I can't take it to the point of him trying to break down what happened to you know that particular individual because of his past exploits so it was hard for me to believe it well what about you well this is the thing i have never in my adult life or even child life when uh, things were a little bit oh more pleasant because you weren't aware of the world around you and that's really the only reason that nostalgia exists but getting back to this i have never ever in my life heard a sitting United States president basically equate a death to how many jobs it could possibly lose us. Yeah. Well, we all know how very, you know, in tune he is with the American public. And, you know, it goes back to just him, 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 and how he could make it to the whole thing about himself. Somebody's died. You know, somebody's family and friends are mourning this man, yet you want to make it about yourself. Again, this is classic Trump. We should not be surprised. Um, He doesn't have a soul. He doesn't care. And so he'll make anything about him, even somebody in death. God, I hate to say you're right, but this is the thing. He is kind of making this story about him. Now, this is funny because not too long ago, in the year 2014, believe it or not, I did this show called How Dumb is America where I talked about how narcissism works and how somebody can try to make an issue so concerned to their own well-being 
that all of a sudden the story isn't about whatever victim they're trying to rescue in the drama triangle. It becomes about them being victimized about the situation. And Donald Trump seems to have definitely taken the, I think, I'm the victim here kind of approach to how he's dealing with this salty aftermath. Do you? Yes, because sympathy breeds attention. And he's an attention whore. And he's out there big time, so he needs that attention, whether it's positive and, and trying to make it about uh, what can we do to make it, uh, once again, about himself. When you're dealing with that type of personality, before my narcissism and things of that nature, mm-hmm. you have to know when it's coming. You have to have some experience with it. And I think with a lot of people in this country, we've seen it a, uh, a personality trait of his. And so we should not be surprised. I think the question becomes at times, Shaggy, when will it end? Uh, That's an interesting question that you bring up because let's jump into kind of another story about when it will end. A lot of people are looking and pining towards the midterms to give us some sort of referendum where we stand with this whole Trump N-word America. And I'll talk about the white people's N-word here in a sec. But when it comes to Donald Trump, here's a very interesting theory thrown out by Morning Joe. You know him, right? Joe Scarborough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Rock and roll politician. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Uh, But one of the things that the rock and roll politician Morning Joe said is in his big old cup of tea about Trump is that he thinks that and. I kind of want to bring up another story at this time, but he thinks that Donald Trump is going to cash out of the presidency in 2020 and not run for a second term. Oh, he'll run. No, he'll run. His ego won't let him say that he wouldn't. You know, he's gotten this far. He's got, quote unquote, the gig. He's shown who he truly is. He wants to be a dictator. The people he admire are very savior personalities. Go back to even uh, President Nixon, who he says is his favorite president. He always gives kudos to uh, dictators and men who rule with an iron hand, you know, Kim Jong-un and, mm-hmm. you know, people like that, uh, Vladimir Putin. You know, he, he admires that because he wants to be like them. So um, continue on with his power, his ego, again, would not let him say, I'm not going to run in 2020. I think he'll be more emphatic and more determined to reclaim the presidency. This is the thing. I'm kind of going to be on Joe's side here because there was another story that me and Ron Pertie covered this week about how Donald Trump basically bragged to people that he is making bank from this whole presidency thing. And knowing the type of dynamic that Donald Trump lives in. The he who dies with the most toys wins. I kind of see that Donald Trump would take all of these lucrative things that he is actually getting from the presidency despite the emoluments clause people. We we actually have this thing called the Constitution. We wrote this part in there, but uh, moving on. Uh, In violation of the emoluments clause and of everything decent of a public official, Donald Trump has been saying that the presidency has been very lucrative, not only to his corporation, but his kids, as well as himself. I kind of see Donald Trump taking the latest suckers approach in 2020, because realistically, at that point, 
he could leave office and say, I've done everything that I want to. I'm leaving a winner. But at the same time, if you're very lucrative in your four years, why not run the table and do four more years if it's just that lucrative? So you don't want to give up the money and the power. It protects him at the same time because all these people coming after him, uh, all these uh, people that are going to uh, all obviously out him for who he is and cutting these deals, you know, like, you know, Paul Manafort and the rest. These are just a tip of the iceberg of people who come forward after the ones we just talked about. So he's still ensconced in where he is. He, he's avoiding the inevitable, which is treason, uh, which is you know, money laundering from uh, working with the Russians and Vladimir Putin, uh, the money cleaning and things like that. So he's on borrowed time. So if you're able to get four more years of borrowed time, why not do it? Well, here's the thing, though. <clears throat> I'm going to compare this to a movie that just came out that has a lot of people weeping openly. Um, have you seen the movie First Man yet? No, I have not. Now, once again, this is a movie that is based on actual events that we know in history happened. And by the way, there's a whole lot of archival film, photos, and everything about it. It's about the Apollo 11 historic moon landing. Now, Donald Trump tried to make this movie into a, a story about himself when he said, how dare these producers not show the flag getting planted. They planted the flag. There was no kneeling, no games, and I'm going... I did not know the moon was a part of the NFL. But moving on, right. here's the thing. Uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump tried to politicize first, first man. But first man demonstrated some technology that I think kind of shows the mechanics of how Donald Trump's brain works. Oh, God, I'm about to compare Donald Trump to rocket science. Strap in, kitties. Here we go. Uh when we send a craft like the Apollo from Earth to Moon, we don't just have one rocket to do the entire job, Chris. It always happens in stages. And as such, the biggest stage of establishing yourself, of breaking free of whatever gravity holds you in whatever sphere that you're on, that's called first stage. And first stage, no matter how much fuel you put into it, no matter how much technology and stuff you cram into it it becomes a statistical game of first stage can only take you so far and i think donald trump is kind of using his run at the united states presidency as a first stage to launch a after career believe it or not so when when it comes to could donald trump cash out in 2020 i'm gonna go ahead and say i agree with joe I'm going to have to say that he'll go further than 2020. I think that, for example, we look at him when he goes to campaign for the Republicans. He loves to be in front of his home base, his Trump-based supporters. He revels in it. He's off script. He's off teleprompter Trump. That's where he lives and breathes. I don't think he can give it up in 2020. Just on that alone, I think between that and what you said earlier in the conversation about it being lucrative— it's hard to step away from money, in particular, especially if it's the cash flow that he claims that it is. So if you're able to do it again for another four years, I'm telling you, I just I think that his goal is to do it again, you know, for four more. 
I kind of think that his goal has been this whole time of set up something favorable to himself financially and then Mm -hmm. exit public life back into the private sector to capitalize on the things that he's happening in office. And, you know, I don't want to use the word conspiracy theory, but it's been ballyhooed around that, yeah, this whole run up at the presidency that Trump never intended to actually win in the first place is now kind of a running out the clock before they catch me scenario. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I said before earlier, it's borrowed time. If you're able to have a hold on borrowed time, and you know the inevitable is around the corner, when once again, uh, the possibility of jail time or, again, all these people coming forward to denounce who you are and cutting these deals so they won't go to jail for a long time, then, again, what we're seeing is a man who knows that the end is near, but if he can prolong the inevitable, I think he'll cash that cash that chip in for four more years. Well, here's the thing, <clears throat> because this is a guy that typically has not been brought up in the news with Donald Trump's name attached because he has done everything possible to live his best life out of public life. I want to bring up a a, a little bit of a rally this week. And no, I'm not talking about the tumultuous ones that Trump had where he used the new white people N-word of nationalism. We'll get to that in a sec. I want to talk about another rally where a lot of people were shocked at the words of former President Barack Obama. Chris, walk us through the tea that the former president was trying to pour. I think pretty much the message that I got out of it from the former president of Barack Obama was this is not the time to sit on your laurels. This is probably, and I have to agree with the president, the most, I would say the most strongest election we ever had. Usually we have to be the big ones, of course, you know, with your presidential, but these are uh, November midterms. This is a key critical time for people to get out and vote. And he did uh, it's nice to see him unleashed mm. and not, you know, by the soil of, you know, when you're the president, you have to act a certain way, comport a certain way. We almost forgot about it because of 45 being in office, because before that, we'd have a president who knew how to act presidential and he was presidential. So now we fast forward to him uh, living in, you know, the private sector, a little more looser, you know, not as confined and everything else. You know, he's, he's done his eight years, which he did, obviously. And I think that the message he's trying to convey is that, this is the time to really make a change. You know, I made a change back in 2008, and the next following eight years, this is the time for change right now, right here and right now. Yeah, but when Obama came out, he said that the country had been inexplicably changed under Trump to, and this is the funny thing, I love when Obama speaks about Trump because even as a former president who really, let's just Let's just face facts. If him, if if George W. Bush, if any living former president were to come out now and use whatever language they wanted to to describe whatever other politician they wanted, we we would kind of give them a pass because of the atmosphere that Trump has created. But when it comes to Obama, he still tries to maintain a little bit of the quote-unquote presidential decorum, and he never mentions Trump by name. But... The funny thing is, is that when he started his speech, he says, I want to tell you a fact. I believe in facts. That's a fact. I believe that we should be based in reality, 
that has facts to ba base up that back up that reality. He basically went through this whole explanation of, look, people, I'm sorry you forgot how reality works. And then went into this moment where he called out, not in name, but at least in methodology, Donald Trump. And what did we learn about President, former President Barack Obama's uh, feelings towards current President Donald J. Trump through his comments, Chris? We learned that there's obviously a direct difference between both men, not only ideology, but the fact that what's right when it comes to morals, what's right when it comes to what's best for the American citizens. And we look at it day and night, as far as I'm concerned, you have a president in a Barack Obama that was pretty much trying to embrace everybody. And then you have Donald J. Trump, who is me, the president. I think Colin Powell, former U.S. National Secretary Advisor said it best. He said one of my favorite quotes was, we the people, and the current president has changed that to me the president. And I don't know true words that have been spoken. I think you can't get more deeper than what Colin Powell said. It rings true because we go back to our original statement in our conversation, Shaggy, that he makes it all about himself. When, when you are the president of the United States, it should be for everybody really should and the thing is is that if you're one of those people that is kind of looking at the situation like me and my poor wife here in the united states and thinking god i would really like to get away uh, one of those airlines that you wouldn't want to jump on to leave the country or to fly anywhere happens to be ryanair and and here's the thing because when you sent this story to me earlier i thought that you had kind of got autocorrected on rihanna so we'll talk about Rihanna in a sec, but Chris, what's this story about Ryanair? Well, there was a passenger on Ryanair uh, who happened to be uh, white, and there was an African-American lady that was sitting a seat away from him. And he said, he started shouting at her, the woman, saying that, you're in my way, get out. I don't want you to hear next to me. Uh, and it went on from there. And so he grabs his phone to start to record the encounter and things like that. And pretty much called her out of her name by this point. And so people, of course, you know, some people on there recorded the incident. And, you know, he's shouting obscenities because he does not want a black woman sitting next to him on these uh, airlines and these seats. And so what I thought was disrespectful was that they asked her to move, not him. And so you would think of somebody that's on there, uh, once again, rabble-rousing because he can't stand uh, a N-word woman uh, being next to him, you would think that he would be removed. Don't get a chance to stay in his seat. He got what he wanted. And shame on Ryan uh, Air for removing her instead of him. Okay, so you can have uh, what you just said, an N-word woman kicked off of a plane because I'm going to use this word because of an N-word white man, a nationalist, which we all know is actually dog whistling for white supremacist. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Walk me through, if you are sitting in Ryanair's public relations department, walk me through your initial reactions when somebody tells you this incident happened. Well, if you're in the boardroom, you would think that they would do the right thing and not have this as a, a PR disaster. You don't want anybody to be on your airlines to have the uh, quote-unquote ability and quote-unquote freedom to say that to another passenger. 
you would think that that passion would be dealt with uh, very fairly. But instead, you pretty much get him, give him what he wants. He did not want the black woman to sit alongside him, so she was removed. So what you're pretty much saying is that white customer, that nationalist, was right. That's the thing. He wasn't right. But every time that somebody does something like this, white people, <clears throat> and I'm sorry because, Chris, I got called today a racist again online by another white person who said I was being racist towards white people. I, I do not think that they understand the meaning of these words. <laughs> However, this is the thing. It seems incredibly crazy to me that whenever something like this happens with Ryanair, some stupid cracker somewhere else in the world uses that as a precedence for once again oppressing a minority. Well, they did it for them. Why don't you do it for me? So Ryanair really is done more than a public relations nightmare. They've kind of done a cultural barometer kind of nightmare, too, if you think about it, huh? They have. Uh, you have to understand the mentality of when you don't do anything, you are co-signing. When you don't give out a public statement saying we could know this type of behavior on our airlines, uh, through our passengers, uh, they would be removed from the plane or things like that. And we just let them sit there. They're pretty much saying, OK, the old man was right. He didn't want a black woman sitting next to him. And we condone uh, that type of behavior pattern. But when when you do that, that's when you say, OK, well, I'm not going to fly Ryanair. You've got people probably boycotting and things of that nature of Ryanair. But still, it's the fact that the PR department did not do their due diligence and justice to do the right thing. No. And at the end of the day, we have yet another example of not even here domestically in the United States. We have yet another example of this rise of the inward nationalism. And Donald Trump this week, before, because we've only got a couple minutes here before the break, so I want to throw this in here. Donald Trump this week said, I'm a nationalist. Why do they not want me to use that word? And then starts telling this cheering crowd of crackers, use that word, use that word. If somebody were to come up to you, specifically a white person, and said that they were a nationalist, what would be your first reaction, Chris? My first reaction would be to pretty much get out of their way. I don't want to be in their environment and be in their space because that's code for being a white supremacist. But where I come from, I could get it wrong. I'll be the first to admit if I made a mistake, but I don't think in a situation. I think that's obviously code for what it is. And white supremacy goes with racism and white supremacy goes to KKK, skinheads and all the whole thing. So I don't want to be in your space. I would definitely get me the hell up out of there. Now, there is one little group of quote-unquote nationalists. They're the far alt-right group, and they call themselves the Proud Boys. This week, it was kind of released in a little story that I read. Um, <clears throat> the Proud Boys, Chris, I want to ask you, historically speaking, organizations like the Proud Boys, a, a pro-white supremacy Caucasian male filled group of basic incels and other type of despicable people. This group is now the modern day equivalent of the brown shirts for Donald Trump, much like the brown shirts, the uh, SA was for Hitler back in World War II. Do you think that comparison holds up, Chris, and why? 
Oh, absolutely, because even races need historical content. So they have to draw upon something to do what they do currently here in the present. So, for example, you study the Third Reich and what it stood for and uh, the time of Adolf Hitler and uh, destroying uh, people, putting them in, you know, gases and burners and destroying human bodies and trying to cover the earth with the perfect specimen of blonde hair and blue eyed individuals. Yeah, you need you need uh, some index. And so, yeah, I would say it's a favorable match. Because when you look at that, you look at the influences, just how so many people dress. They dress like uh, a former uh, a German Nazi from back in the day. They put uh, certain swastikas on not only uh, their clothes, but on their bodies for tattoos. So historical content-wise, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and the funny thing that you mentioned is because thanks to historical context, uh, leaders of a group called Unite the Right, you remember them? Uh, yes, three of their leaders were arrested this week after it was found out that mm, they were kind of inciting violence and riots. And one of the things that they recovered, Chris, is notes between each other. As you know, investigators slid into the DMs, as it were, and found mm -hmm. these guys openly discussing their fashion choices because they didn't want to look like the traditional white supremacist. They wanted to dress up white supremacy in a whole new spin and the bad thing is is it's kind of effective isn't it oh very much so i mean we've seen uh, how dockers for example and um and certain shirts that you wear uh from certain people going back say for example the um unfortunate happening at uh, charlottesville virginia where we saw that unfold uh, polo shirts and things of that nature and getting tiki, uh, you know, grass uh, stands and stuff like that. Um, they were trying to create their own look and their own image. Why? Because they use it as recruiting tools for other people. So it's about putting, you know, I hate to say it, but they're branding themselves like any other brand. Yeah. And the bad thing is, is that's where we have to leave off this story, the gentrification of white supremacy, because white people weren't happy with gentrifying enough. Chris, stay close. When we get back from the break, we got to talk about actual black girl magic, the Super Bowl, and more as we go through the week of review in news. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Stay close, won't you? Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. Unlike the American Constitution, the British Constitution is not entirely written down. Instead, the British Constitution is composed of common law, acts of parliament, court decisions, and long-established practices and traditions. Three documents play a very important role in the British Constitution. These are the Magna Carta of 1215, the Petition of Right of 1628, and the English Bill of Rights of 1689. The Magna Carta established that there were limits to the king's power and spelled out some of the basic rights of Englishmen. 
The Magna Carta reinforced the idea that Britain was a country governed by the rule of law. The Petition of Right of 1628 referred to the Magna Carta as the basis for its legitimacy. Like so many conflicts between the king and parliament, the Petition of Right came about because the king tried to pressure his subjects for money without the consent of parliament. This led to parliament forcing King Charles I to agree to the Petition of Right, which stated, among other things, that the king could raise taxes only with the consent of parliament. Finally, the Bill of Rights of 1689 established parliamentary privilege, which meant that parliament would meet frequently, would have free elections of members of the House of Commons, and would have freedom of speech within parliament. Other protections included the guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment, and the right to fair treatment by the courts. These protections influenced the American Bill of Rights, which was ratified a little more than 100 years later, in 1791. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. A lot at stake this November. 36 governorships. 35 Senate seats. And all 435 House seats are up for election. If only 50% of voters show up, it would be the highest midterm turnout in a century. Learn more and get involved at IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. More news, less alternative facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Chicken Show. Welcome back to it from the island of Maui, the 50th state of Hawaii. Aloha. Welcome back. If you've never heard the show before, hey, why not jump over to our website at shaggychinkins.com. Catch up on some of the previous episodes. You can also subscribe, and we would encourage a review or something, on Spotify and Stitcher. But all that details is on my website, shaggychinkins.com. A guy that you will find pictured on my website because... Let's just face it, he's such a dapper guy, why would you keep him contained? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the windy city of Chicago, St. Chris Base. Uh, thank you very much, Base in your face. Oh man, you know, the funny thing is, is this week's headline kind of got me feeling that whole Base in your face, public enemy kind of vibe. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is the thing. Colin Kaepernick, let's dive right back into the stories with this one. Colin Kaepernick sure. kind of epitomizes something that, I hate to say it, but way back when Public Enemy predicted would be a problem, Colin Kaepernick, Chris, would you say, basically epitomizes the <clears throat> Caucasian fear of a black planet? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, he's the epitome of that, and then some. I think especially when Colin Kaepernick came out with the braids, especially with the afro. I mean, a lot of people still feel that as a, as defiant behavior. Uh, they don't really care for it. They care for it back then. It sure as hell don't care for it now. So I think that not only did he embrace the culture, he embraced the fact that not only am I that, I can show you, but I can, you know, walk you through it. So I loved it. I, I, I was amazing how he got his, uh, his helmet on through his afro. But you know, he got the braids on. You know, you cut that hair down some. But uh, Colin Kaepernick, on a serious note, should be commended for what he's done over the years. Uh, that's a hell of a jump to be 
And people forget, I mean, almost distance away, I mean, being uh, the quarterback for the 49ers, they weren't that far from a Super Bowl themselves during that time. You know, they almost uh, ran the table went into that game, mm-hmm. to the big dance. But and to him to just lose everything, for these teams not to pick him up, the coup and the fix was in, you're going to sit there and tell me that you couldn't, none of these teams want him, and then teams like the Baltimore Ravens come out and say, you yeah, we want him all of a sudden, they backtrack. And all of a sudden, uh, they do a moonwalk. We don't want them anymore because they felt pressure from the NFL, the Shield. So uh, what he's done to certain people is almost similar to what Muhammad Ali did. When your career is online and you go for your heart and what you believe in more so than the sport itself, that's, that's not easy to do. It really isn't. Yeah, because this is the thing that I, and I'm trying to make sure that I verify the facts here because I, I learned something very important this week. And, and I've not only learned it from Donald Trump, but through the comments of one John Oliver who said, once you don't get the facts right, the whole foundation of what you're trying to do falls apart. Oddly, that is not true about our, um, our, our presidency. But this is the thing. When it comes to Colin Kaepernick, I read this interesting statistic that uh, the New England Patriots were basically 32 and, and, and nothing until they ran into a very upstart, formidable quarterback that was able to knock them off of that pedestal. That quarterback was Colin Kaepernick. He's basically the only guy to play at the level that Tom Brady is playing at in the NFL. So is it any surprise to you? Because this is what is so interesting about this week. Chris, is it any surprise to you that now celebrities are starting to have an interest in football? And because the NFL has been courting celebrities for a while, some celebrities are actually using that platform to say, hey, remember Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I think that when you start the fact that injustice has happened, and people can feel other people's plights and what they go through. Um, and you have high, you know, named celebrities that are saying, you know what, I stand or deal with Kaepernick, you know. And, I, and a lot of them, a couple of them said, look, I don't care for how you treated Kaepernick, so I'm not going to perform for halftime of Super Bowl next year. Now, this is the thing, because... <clears throat> Whenever you think about influential female pop stars, one of the most formidable, we're not going to mention in this story, and that would be Beyonce, because Beyonce had the greatest video of all time. Thank you, Kanye West. However, there is another pop diva. She is a superstar. She has a lot of star power, and it looks like she might be guilty of having a little black girl magic. Chris, can we talk about Rihanna? dissing the NFL when she turned down the ability to do the halftime show? Oh, yes. Yes, she is a forerunner because don't get me wrong. Let's all stand talking about the following. It's a business and I understand that. So, you know, but some people say, you know what? Damn the business. It's about what I believe in and who I believe in and who I side with. So, for example, Rihanna, who got a paid, I mean, look, look, if you perform and you're the draw for the Super Bowl halftime show, you're going to seriously get paid. Let's not uh, brush it on the table. But if you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to take the money. I don't like what you're doing with Colin Kaepernick. So for that, I'm out. And uh, she has done that, and I think very effectively. I got to kind of give her an a girl on this one because here's the thing. As she's been 
<clears throat> very public with her denouncing of the NFL, she's also inspired some other celebrities. Now, I know that she is not maybe everybody's cup OT, but she has been arrested for protesting Brett Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation and right on the heels of Rihanna's public statement came out and said, hey, sisterhood is real. I'm in solidarity with her. Amy Schumer will not appear in any product placed ad or any commercial that intends to air during the Super Bowl. And again, good for Amy Schumer. You know, you, you see the rise of these celebrities. And these are not nobody to speak of. These people, like, for example, uh, Rihanna or uh, Amy Schumer, they fill arenas. You know, what's about 30 to, 30 to 50,000 or so more people per arena, you know, and much more. So they hold power. So you got to figure if they decline the offer from the Shield to do anything associated with the NFL, that alone speaks beyond volumes. Uh, her, uh, once again, Rihanna, Amy Schumer, uh, the performer Pink has gone on to say, no, I'm not going to perform either. So what you got left? Uh, Maroon 5. And Maroon 5 is going to sign on to do it. I'm not mad at Maroon 5. I don't expect anybody to pick up the mantle of uh, civil rights and, and social justice. It depends on who they are. So, But I do applaud Rihanna, Amy Schumer, and Pink uh, for saying, you know what, no thanks. I'll, I'll sit this one out, literally. Can, can I just speak on behalf of all minorities in the United States? I, Chris, I, I, I'm going to agree with you. I wouldn't want Maroon 5 to be the group that fought for civil rights either. No, I don't want them, no. No, no. But this oh. is the thing. This is only like the very, very early uh, edges of Super Bowl kind of rumbling. And especially everybody's favorite part of the Super Bowl, it's not the game, it's the commercials. How much of a domino effect do you think Rihanna's actions are going to have given the influence and status that she actually enjoys? The, the snowball effects already started. We'll see down the road close to Super Bowl game time how much it will affect the bottom line and how many other celebrities would turn down. Again, you know, we got Maroon 5. Eh, you know, I'm not trying to knock Maroon 5, but eh. But if anybody else likes them, that's fine. But if you talk about other types of entertainment to go with Maroon 5, then as Scooby-Doo once said, Russell Ruck. At this point, because you're going to these high profile celebrities who are pretty much are joined together, arm locked in mindset and in spirit and physically to say, you know what, we're going to take a stance on this. Yeah. And when it comes to taking a stance, here's the thing. Like you said, the NFL is a business. If this impacts the NFL enough, do you think they'll reconsider the career of Colin Kaepernick? No, 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 they won't. The damage has already been done. Uh, they will not let him in altogether. He is now deemed the enemy. So they will not let him come back in any way, shape, or form. Oh, well, damn. Let's talk about other minstrel shows besides the NFL, shall we? Megyn Kelly oh, had a very interesting comment this week. And um, I want to say on behalf of white people everywhere, Chris, she ain't our people. Megyn okay, Kelly... You don't, you don't claim her, Okay. <laughs> We do not claim her. As a matter of fact, right. somebody come get this one. Because she claimed this week, and, and I bring this up because me and Megan Kelly are actually pretty close in age. She said that when she was a kid, it was acceptable for white kids to go out in blackface. And 
as a child of North Carolina during the same age group that Megyn Kelly is, I don't remember a time in America, other than a very dark part of our, our history, where it was, quote-unquote, okay to be in blackface. Now, Chris, you've only got a couple of years on me. Did you ever go out trick-or-treating and see some uh, kids walk around in blackface and think, oh, that's normal? Uh, no, no. Back in the day when I was a kid, uh, we had some god-awful costumes. I mean, God, God love us. But we had like the plastic bass with the rubber band around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we had these uh, very sheer um, costume they got out of a box. And, you know, it would rip in any second. And we know we had to wear our clothes because it was too damn cold to be walking outside in October. So we have our clothes on and then the costume underneath that. And so don't be wrong. It was what it was. But I, I commend today's costuming because it has more, you know, it has more moving parts, I should say, and more creativity. Yeah. So, no, but blackface, uh, no. No, that was never the game. Okay, because here's the thing. I've been doing a little study of the history of blackface, and uh, I have not, under any circumstances, found a time in America where it was not only acceptable to white people to be in blackface, but from minorities that it was acceptable that white people were in blackface. And I looked far and wide through the history of it. Now, here's some of the interesting things I discovered. Some white performers back in the day, because black people were banned from playing themselves on the silver screen, sympathetically, and I'm using air quotes really heavily here, sympathetically tried to embrace their persona to respectfully (coughs) depict them on camera. And can I just say that white people don't get black people, Chris, and the blackface performers of Hollywood's yesteryear prove that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay, here's the other thing. Part of their, remember how I said this was supposed to be a <clears throat> respectful homage to black performers mm-hmm. when these white people were in blackface? Mm-hmm. Two words, and I want to know your reaction to him because if you don't know this name, you really don't understand how crazy white people took blackface. Chris, let's talk about Al Jolson. Yes, let's talk about Al Jolson. This is the thing. A lot of historians kind of look back at the life of Al Jolson and say, this is a guy that got black culture. Did he, though? No, because he came from that era where you put on blackface and perform. It was also optional because um, some movie theaters, you know, not movie theaters, but theaters that perform live performances, that's what you did. If you go back and look at your history, say movies, even the uh, the nice uh, Mickey Rooney, uh, Junie Garland movies from back in the day, they did blackface. Everybody did it. So cartoons had blackface uh, cartoon characters on there, which down the road, they had to edit and ban those from various cities because it obviously was offensive. So everybody and a black mama or blackface mama was doing uh, minstrel shows in blackface. Uh, put the black, 
you know, tar on from the cork and everything else, and then use white or red lips to accentuate uh, the lips and everything else, and the whole jazz hands and mammy, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, Al Jolson uh, made a living of that, and especially Al Jolson being the first uh, talky movie star to do the jazz singer uh, back in the day. Mm. So he had quite a lot of clout. Uh, him, uh, a lot of, that's what they did. In fact, the old Amos and Andy Amos situation and Andy. back in the day. Amos and Andy was a famous and really powerful rating uh, radio show that aired out of WGN, ironically here in Chicago, by two white guys who did black stereotypical dialects. Yeah, and that's just it. When you look at Al Jolson, a lot of people don't realize that Al Jolson himself is the epitome of that error's racism. And I gotta I gotta bring this up, Chris, because not too many people know this. Al Jolson had a specific racist cue on his costume. Do you know what that cue was? No, what was it? White gloves. You oh see? yeah, the jazz hands, yeah. Yeah, well, jazz hands, because you brought those up. Jazz hands, <clears throat> in other words, the white glove actually has its origins in white people wanting to not be scared by black minstrel players and not wanting any skin-to-surface contact, uh, contact between their black servants and whatever things in their house oh, they had to sully with their presence. White yes. gloves were kind of a, I dare say it, a handcuff of oppression for black people did during that era. And that's why when you watch those movies from the golden and silver screen era, um, <clears throat> or the golden and silver age era of Hollywood, every white performer, I mean, every black performer is wearing those damned white gloves because nobody, nobody wanted to touch them. So when Al Jolson got up there with the jazz hands and the white gloves, he was basically calling out to the, yeah, I get this whole segregation Jim Crow thing. That's, that's an amazing historical point. And I'll add this to that. You had black performers during that time, uh, like a Bernie Williams, and who cannot perform to white folk by themselves or speak to them. Because the white audience, they said, it was deemed too threatening for a black man to speak to a white audience. So black performers had to have duos or teams and do routines and not speak to the white audience. Yeah. Remember those early movie codes where a black man wasn't allowed to play a character that oppressed a white person and white slavery was illegal to show on the screen? But black slavery? Uh -huh. Have at it. Now, oh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, it even got silly to the point where there was movies, and you can look this up, there is movies with black-faced Caucasian stars where in the background actual black people are playing slaves. Yes. Yeah. That is just I mean, Absolutely. Up. I mean, you know, and it is messed up because once again, everybody did it. Uh, one of my favorite old school groups was uh, the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved the Marx Brothers as a kid, but I felt really disturbed in one movie. I can't think of the name of it right now, but they were hiding from people chasing them and they were underneath this car and the oil was dripping and there were black folks singing in a particular scene. They put the oil on their faces to blend in with the black folk in the scene. And I, I felt bad because I love the Marx Brothers. I think they're one of the most original uh, stage groups of all time, but they saw that particular, I saw the particular black face scene 
I'm like, I don't want to watch them anymore when I watched it as a kid. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and throw up the jury here. Is because Meg Megan Kelly, she did come out and apologize, but Chris, has it ever been appropriate in this country ever for people to put on blackface? Ah, uh, no. And Megan Kelly apologized because she had to. NBC Brass made her apologize because she had no other choice. It was up to her. You think she would apologize by herself? Oh, hell nope. It never would have happened. So the network had to get behind that just to save face. Now, let me say this about Megyn Kelly. To me, Megyn Kelly is one of the most non-talented people in terrestrial television. She has nothing. And and, and I was talking on my show earlier about people saying it was uh, a hype uh, is to boost ratings. You couldn't their ratings, you know, anyway. If she had talent to begin with, that's different. But she has none. And people I talk to the broadcasting industry tell me, dude, it's a waste of space. They pay her, what, between 25 and maybe 26 mil per year mm. for what she's doing. And they don't want to let it go because they got to eat that contract. So she could pretty much go on there and say what she wants to. But if I was NBC Brass, I would I would try to get rid of her because she's not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would replace her with Tiffany Haddish and call it a day. Um, that would do it. Let's let's go. Go. We've got two final stories here in about oh god, seven minutes to run through them. Okay, here's something that we have to talk about because Megyn Kelly was trying to have this whole thing of wanting to be inclusive, you know, of saying, "Hey, blackface is okay as long as you're doing it respectively." And once again, as a fellow Caucasian, Megyn, no. However, when it does come to inclusion, let's just say that the group least likely to be inclusive in the United States are children. Would you agree to that? Absolutely. Well, let's bring up this story of a little boy and his fingernail polish getting him into some bullying. Chris, take us through it. Well, there's a story about a kindergartner who goes to school and decides to go to school with his fingernails polished. And um, he goes there, and all of his friends, including his best friends, make fun of him. And they were very unrelentless. They just made fun of his, you know, the fact that his nails are polished and a boy shouldn't do that, things like that. And so he comes home to his father, and he tells what his father, he tells his father what happened to him that day in school. So the boy's thinking about removing the nail polish. And so he's like, all right, then, well, if you want to do that, fine. But I think you should keep them on because that's what you like. That's what you want. So not only is this a, a learning moment, the uh, the boy's 10-year-old brother uh, painted his nails, too. And the father did a solidarity to the kindergartner. You can't get a better embracing story to what it is. Now, some people may not care for the fact of a boy polishing his nails. It, it's to each their own. But he's not trying to defame his son or embarrass his son. He's embracing who his son is. You know, this is the thing. My my parents, God love them. They are backwards. They are country AF. But one of the things <laughs> that my parents have always been is supportive. And this is going to be a revelation to everybody on this show. Hey, in high school, I went through that whole gothic phase and I wore fingernail polish. They never said anything about it. And, and the thing is, is when other guys and stuff would pick on me about it, back then the climate was radically different. My parents would never have done that. And 
Ooh. I was the only boy in the family, so of course everybody else wore nail polish. Where do you think I got it from? Um, but, but getting back into this, look, Chris, why is it that kids are so quick to react to a kid being different, like it was with this boy and his nails? Because they mimic what they see at home, uh, for one thing. I mean, for example, look what the adults are doing. And I hate to bring up Trump again, but when they go to these uh, campaign stomping grounds, how mean-spirited they are, things of that nature. This is learned behavior. So when your parents or family members are doing it, and you're a child, you pick up on that. That's the environment you're raised in. And so when you uh, say, for example, you're not raised in an environment, we feel peer pressure because your other fellow students are doing it. You want to do it too. Case in point, going back to the story, uh, the young man's name is, the boy's name is Sam. And for his friends to turn on him because everybody's making fun of him, you know who your friends are and aren't. And uh, again, when you look at the story, now look, I go when I can uh, get a manicure. And I remember back in the day when I was working, I said, dude, I want to take time off to go get a manicure. He was making fun of me. I was like, dude, we get a manicure for him. Man, God, you know, you this and that. And I said, dude, uh, but having a manicure is, uh, I don't know, keeping well-groomed. You know, nothing wrong with that. And so he was like, all right, then. Name one person you know outside of you that's getting a manicure. All right, Michael Jordan. Shut the whole thing down. Because yeah. he was a Michael Jordan fan, you know. So I'm like, dude. You, if you don't need somebody to tell you to get a manicure or a pedicure, you should want that alone because, first of all, women dig it. You know, and that, I mean, seriously, you know, from my experiences, man, you're not cutting up the, uh, <laughs> you're not cutting up the bed sheets with your toenails, dude. You know, I mean, you know, you're, you actually got, you know, some, some trim done. So good for you. But it all depends on the mentality because it's young or teenagers or old people, older people is that mentality that does not want to see anything different from them. Damn. And you know, here's the thing. We're going to run out of time real quick, but I just got to say this. If you're from Chicago and you think that getting a a manicure is something bad, have you never seen any gangster movie about your city ever? Last story, though. Look, I I mean, we could cover the bombings and stuff and the potential bombs that were sent out, but let's talk about bombshells because in our missed stories of the week, one of the former justices of the Supreme Court issued a very heartbreaking statement. Chris, we've got about three minutes here. Let's talk about Sandra Day O'Connor. Miss O'Connor, the uh, first woman to sit a Supreme Court justice uh, announced that she has early signs and stages of Alzheimer's disease and retirement from public life. Uh, she's 88 years old. And again, another trailblazer. Uh, you hate to hear bad news to good people. Uh, I remember when she became the uh, Supreme Court justice. You know, again, you see these people who are able to make change within a system. And she definitely done that. And so to see her literally fade away uh, breaks my heart. And uh, she gave an open statement. Uh, if you go online, check it out for yourself. You don't have time to go over it. But it's very heartfelt and probably one of the last times we'll hear from her. And I want to say uh, thank you, Justice O'Connor, for the use you put in the service. And never be forgotten. I'll never forget you. And, and I'm sorry you're going through this. Uh, prayers to her and her family and friends. Yeah, because here's the thing, with all of the stuff that's going on with Trump, the bombings and things like that, we soon forget that 
this country is made up of real people. And, and when it comes to the real story of Sandra Day O'Connor, a revolutionary justice, she will be missed. Chris, where can people find you online? You find me online, go to facebook.com and type in Chris Bass, C-H-R-I-S, B is in broadcasting, A-S-E. We're up to about 147 Chris Bases, but you see I look like right now. You'll find me on Facebook and, and enjoy, joy, joy when that happens. Oh, yes. For everybody else, hopefully you enjoy your weekend. And until next week, please try to keep some sanity, America, because we are running on so little. Check out the website, shaggychinkins.com. Subscribe to us on Stitcher and Spotify. And until next week, please remember, love you mean it. Kate and bye. We're out.